Well, hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week, we're playing a show from our archives. This was a Boomer Boulevard show that was first broadcast on the 7th of December back in 2015. Hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. This is the show where we play old-time radio shows that we actually remember when we were kids. And why do we remember them? Because we're baby boomers. And that means we're getting old, folks. That's what that means. Gosh, it seemed like uh, being a baby boomer always meant you were a young hipster. And now suddenly you're on Social Security and Medicare. But it's okay because we still have a lot of fun. As they say, the 60 is the new 40 and all of that good stuff. So come on in, behave yourselves. No uh, no necking back there. None of this uh, messing around. We're just going to have a good, clean show, and we're glad to have you on board. We've got an episode of Philip Marlowe tonight. We have a Jack Benny show, and we're going to end up with a very unique story on Gunsmoke. And it's all going to get started in just a minute. Well, it's really nice to nice to have you aboard. Chester is all concerned. We have a fella that lives uh, uh, kind of catty corner to us here, and he has a big corner lot. And this year, he wanted to go all out, and so he's got every almost every square foot of his yard covered with some kind of holiday 
thing, you know, like sleds and snowmen and and uh, mangers and all kinds of things, stars and and a lot of them are I don't know they they look like they're made out of maybe styrofoam and and wrought iron or something. But all of the characters he's got snowmen and Santa Claus and angels and carolers. They were all these blow up balloons. Let me explain. We have a hardware store not uh, not far from us here that really specializes in five or six foot high balloons that you blow up and you you can put on your front yard or wherever you want. And like at Thanksgiving, there's a lot of turkeys. At Halloween, there's a lot of uh, pumpkins and so forth. If you drive by, you'll notice that they have an air compressor running all the time and they've got an air hose that runs behind these characters and every one of these has a hose connecting it to the main hose so they're constantly being puffed up with air. And as I understand it, the the fitting where the air goes in is designed just to fit with this compressor. So if you if you don't buy the whole kit, which I, I guess is very expensive, then your only option is to blow these things up the old-fashioned way, you know, with your mouth. <sighs> like that. No, no, a bicycle pump even doesn't doesn't work on them. No, and and you can't use like a regular compressor, you know, like you'd use on a tire. No, you you have to have this special special fitting that 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 comes in, in their kit. And the the problem is they don't stay blown up. And this poor guy, Earl is his name. He's our neighbor and he's a nice guy, but he's retired and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't have a lot of money. And this was a big expenditure for him. But every morning when he goes out there, all of his characters, like there's what looks like a big pile of, of, of pancakes with, 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 with a cherry on top. And, and that's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. There's a, looks like a big mud puddle over there and that apparently is the uh a, a group of carolers and the sad part is he's got spotlights on each one you know his yard is covered with lights but he's got big spotlights that that are sp- <laughs> supposed to point out each one of these characters these balloons and they've just all they're just flat on the ground so here's all of these it looks like just puddles all over his lawn. The poor guy, he's just heartbroken. And so every day he's out there blowing these things up. Yeah, well, it's got Chester all concerned. What, Chester? Oh, no, no, don't go out there. Well, I know you want to help him, but I'm telling you, first of all, it's cold out there today. It's only like 30 degrees. You can't be standing out there blowing. No, I know how to I know how to run the board. Chester's afraid I won't know how to start the shows. This is against my better judgment. All right. Well, well you let me know right after Philip Marlowe plays, okay? You let me know. Good old Chester. He's he's a great guy, but man, I think that's I think that's a mistake.
Well, are you ready for a little detective action? A little black and white radio noir? One of the atmospheric pieces that we love to play to start off the show here on Boomer Boulevard. Well, we've got a good episode tonight of Philip Marlowe. This one was originally heard on the 29th of January back in 1949. It features, of course, Gerald Moore, and the name of the episode is The Easy Mark. hired to find a blackmailer, and I did. But first I found a badly beaten Adonis, a Jezebel with an accent, and a man who had been an easy mark for murder. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Easy Mark. I'd spent a dull day on a duller subject, which was don't get caught with your income tax return down at midnight, March 15th. After calling time for a thick steak designated to bolster the stamina of a private detective, but nevertheless non-deductible, I reluctantly headed back to my office where I found both my conscience and the long-form 1040 still waiting, which meant there was no way out. The dull day was going to stretch on into the night, but then I got a break, because my telephone rang and the call was from one Mrs. Corey Gilbert, a prospective client who wanted action in a hurry. Marlowe, you've got to move fast. I just found out that my husband, Ross, will be at 3806 Melrose Avenue in 20 minutes, and I know that means trouble. Well, just for size, Mrs. Gilbert, how do you spell trouble? With a capital B, as in blackmail. There's no time for details now. Just get to that address and find out who Ross is meeting with. Only hurry, Marlowe, please. Well, hurry after what, Mrs. Gilbert? I've never met your husband, remember? Oh, oh, yes. Well, he's tall, dark eyes, dark hair, very handsome. And the blackmailer, short, stocky, and repulsive, I suppose. I've never seen the blackmailer. All right, Mrs. Gilbert, where can I reach you? Well, I live at 439 and a half Ogden Drive. Ogden the Drive. phone number is Gladstone 8195. 8195. All right, Mrs. Gilbert, I'll call you. Thanks. Oh, and Marlowe. Yeah? Hurry, will you? You see, I... I love my husband. I was a little more than 20 minutes finding the address on Melrose. But when I finally pulled up and parked away from the place, I figured being late didn't matter because... Number 3806 turned out to be an unfinished house set deep in an acre of building materials. I was about to head for a telephone and get an explanation from a confused lady named Corey Gilbert when a lot of noise from what would someday be a living room changed my mind. Then I knew that my client had the right address after all because there in the pale light of a slice of moon taking the last of an awful beating from a thin man with a thick beard and a lot of muscle was Ross Gilbert. Dark eyes and dark hair like she said but no longer very handsome. Don't! Don't hit me again! Stop worrying, Gilbert! I'm almost through with you except for this. A present from Nanette. And just one more from Nanette. Wow! 
last punch stacked Ross Gilbert onto a pile of rough lumber like he was another one by twelve. And as he slowly scraped to the floor, unconscious thick beard dusted himself off lightly, jerked at his tie, and stepped out of the opening reserved for a future front door. I started over to help Ross Gilbert, but then I remembered that my client wanted to know who her husband was meeting and why, not how hard or fast he could swing. So I decided for the time being to play it quiet. When Thickbeard got into his car, I got into mine. I followed him all the way to Beverly Hills, where he pulled to a stop in front of the Camden Arms Court. I parked lights out and watched him strut up a flagstone walk and knock on the door of a bungalow number four, which was dark. When he knocked again and it stayed dark, he took an envelope out of his pocket, wrote something on it, and jammed it into the mailbox. Then he got back into his car and started away fast. I walked up to the bungalow and helped myself to Thickbeard's empty envelope. On one side, scrawled in pencil and smudged, was the telephone number Sunset 31676. On the other, payment delivered okay, plumber. Plumber, huh? I shoved the message into my pocket, struck a match, and started looking for a name on the front door. But then a cab pulled up, and a moment later I had help. I can be of some assistance, perhaps? Yes, I, I was just... Oh. Uh. <laughs> Nanette? Oui. Nanette Lamarck. But I do not know you, monsieur. No. No, you don't. I, um... I think if you will stop staring and begin talking, we will do much better. Who are you? Uh, Philip Marlowe, a friend of Plummer's. He asked me to deliver a message for him. Do I go on? Of course, Mr. Marlowe. But please come inside. It is so much nicer there. <laughs> Nanette was so right about it being nicer inside. There were lights. And that made it easier to see that the lady with the thick French accent and the gorgeous waistline was something that could have mustered her own foreign legion. She was narrow green eyes and open red lips, topped by a lot of close-cropped soft brown curls that kept running into each other. And for a dress, she was wearing about a quarter of a mile of draped chiffon that, in the right places, fitted a little closer than her own skin. When I told her what I claimed had been a message from Plummer himself, she purred her thanks and started to mix me a drink. When I brought up the subject of blackmail, she stopped abruptly, spilling a bottle of perfectly good Kentucky tavern all over the table. Blackmail? What do you mean, Mallow? Extortion, honey. The malpractice of getting a lot for knowing a little that's not nice. <laughs> You're swinging wild now, mon cher. Maybe. But if it doesn't bother you, I'll stay right with it. Because I'd like to know why you and Plummer, who have such an easy mark, insist on throwing rocks. What easy mark are you talking about? A tall, dark, and used to be a handsome guy named Ross Gilbert. Ross? Soda, Marlowe? Yeah. But don't make it too sweet, honey. I can't take it that way. Nanette will be very careful not to make it too sweet. There. Tell me, mon cher, when did you last see Plummer? Uh, before tonight, I mean. Uh, I'm not sure. I think it was at the fights over at the Legion Stadium last week. Now do I get my drink? Oui, mon cher. You will get your drink in your face, <coughs> liar! <coughs> oh, tell me, Frenchie. Is that Pearl Handle 32 considered the very latest along the Champs-Élysées? You have lied to me, mon ami. You see, Plummer only arrived in Los Angeles the day before yesterday. For the first time in his life. 
All right, I made a mistake about seeing Plummer at the fights last week. Now, why don't you put away the gun and we'll talk about Ross Gilbert. Ross Gilbert is a man I hate with all my heart. A man I could kill right this minute. And that Marlowe goes for anyone connected with him. So now get out. Oh, without even so much as an au revoir? I reserve au revoir for my friends, Marlowe. Good night. Hello? Marlowe, Mrs. Gilbert, is Ross all right? Ross isn't here, Marlowe. What happened to him? He ran into an ugly beating at that address on Melrose. Something nasty from out of town named Plummer is responsible. Ever hear of him and or an imported Jezebel called Nanette Lamarck? No, I haven't. But what about Ross? What's wrong with him? Nothing that a pound of beefsteak and enough liniment can't cure. But before we worry about Ross, Mrs. Gilbert, one more thing. It's a phone number I found on the back of an envelope that belonged to Plummer. Number is Sunset 31676. What? Somebody you know? Someone I know very well. It's the telephone number of my ex-husband, Emery Marsh. Emery Marsh, huh? Fancy dress designer on Wilshire? That's right. But what's he got to do with all this? Emery only met Ross once in Mexico, a party at Ensenada. Yeah, well, look, Mrs. Gilbert, why don't we postpone collecting Ross until I find out a little more? Where does your uh, ex-husband Marsh live? In Santa Monica. But there's a good chance that he's still at his place on Wilshire. He does most of his work at night. Well, then Wilshire Boulevard's my next stop. I'll try to make it a quick one. Goodbye. Emery Marsh's place on Wilshire was an expensive shop with a single velvet-lined show window that was home for a beautiful mannequin wearing an evening gown that would drop at the first sneeze. And after I spent five minutes thumping on a plush leather-upholstered portal, a light finally clicked on someplace inside. And a moment later, Emery Marsh opened the door. He was tall, 45, sandy-haired, and looked less like a dress designer than I did. So after following his tweet back into an inner sanctum that was combed plywood behind Chinese modern furniture, I decided to play it almost straight. Now, Mr. Marlowe, what can I do for you? Well, it's a little too early to tell. I'm a private detective, Mr. Marsh, and I'm working for your ex-wife, Corey Gilbert. Corey? Mm-hmm. Is she in trouble, Mr. Marlowe? No, no, close to it. Tell me, Mr. Marsh, when you were last over to Nanette Lamarck's place at Camden Arms, when was that? Nanette Lamarck? Yeah. I've never heard of her. Nor a man named Plummer? Nor a man named Plummer. Who are they? Well, in the order I tossed them out, a mademoiselle with a touchy temper and a thug who needs a shave. I don't understand. How do they concern me? Well, maybe they don't. But your telephone number turned up on Plummer. Both Plummer and Nanette are tied on to a man who at this moment is probably picking himself up off the floor of an unfinished house at 3806 Melrose Avenue. His name, Mr. Marsh, is Ross Gilbert. Gilbert? Yes, that's right. What do you know about him? Very little. I only met him once at the Riviera Pacifico. Riviera Pacifico? The hotel at Ensenada in Mexico. Mm. Matter of fact, it was the same night that he met Corey. Which didn't make you very happy. Uh, No, you've got it wrong. Corey and I were already divorced. The three of us meeting was nothing more than an accident. Oh. And when Ross and Corey parlayed that accident into marriage, were you still smiling? Better than that, Mr. Marlowe. When that happened a month ago, I was grinning. You see, until then, I had been paying Corey $1,200 a month alimony for two and a half years. Mm. And Corey gave all that up for love and Ross Gilbert, huh? Uh, Ross Gilbert isn't exactly a pauper, Mr. Marlowe. No, I guess not. Blackmailing a pauper doesn't add up. Uh, What did you say, Mr. Marlowe? 
I said putting the bite on somebody who has nothing is like sucking a lollipop with a cellophane on it. You get action, but no results, you see? Oh. Now, tell me, why does the word blackmail come home to roost, Mr. Marsh? You wouldn't happen to know who the guilty party is, would you? No, Mr. Marlowe. And what's more, if I did, I certainly wouldn't keep that sort of thing to myself. Oh, no, I don't think you would. Well, thanks anyway, Mr. Marsh. You've been a big help. I'm glad. And if I can be of any further help, don't hesitate to call on me, Mr. Marlowe. Uh, please. No, I won't, Mr. Marsh. You can depend on it. All the way from Wilshire Boulevard to Mrs. Gilbert's place on Ogden Drive, I kept wondering who wanted how much out of Ross Gilbert and why. About 20 minutes later, when I pulled up in front of the house, I started concentrating on my client, who had to be the woman standing next to a green coupe in the driveway and waiting in double time. Corey Gilbert was long, flowing blonde hair draped over shoulders that at the moment looked like they were carrying the weight of the world. But she was prettier worried than most women who always keep it gay. Mr. Marlowe? Yeah, Mrs. Gilbert? Yes. Your husband's shown up yet? No. Marlowe, what do you suppose Take it happened? easy. Maybe we'd better have another look at uh, 3806 Melrose Avenue, huh? Whatever you say. Shall I drive? If you've got a license. Yes, Mr. Marlowe. I've got a license. Well, okay, let's go. <laughs> The way we took off in Corey's Nash, I wasn't sure whether her license was for driving a car or an airplane. And while she kept her 83-and-a-half AAA on the accelerator, she talked about her husband and why she was worried. By the time we were near the place, I knew all about the party at Ensenada, their whirlwind courtship, and what a fine guy Ross Gilbert was. When we got out of the car and started over the last hundred yards toward the unfinished house... I'd learned everything Corey knew about the blackmail angle, which wasn't very much. It started last week, Marla, when we got back from our honeymoon. Ross wasn't himself at all. He was worried. He forgot how to laugh. He argued with me over any and everything. Mm. Where does the blackmail come in? I don't know. He wouldn't tell me what was wrong. Then this evening, just before I called you, I overheard him talking on the telephone. That's when I caught the word blackmail and this address. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe Ross will be able to fill in a few of the blanks for us. Oh, he was over here in this room on a pile of lumber when I... Must have done a lot more damage than I figured. Ross! Ross! Take it easy. Take it easy, baby. Marlowe, what is it? Is he... Is he... I'm afraid he is, Corey. That man! That man! He beat him to death! No, Corey, that round hole in Gilbert's chest wasn't made by a fist. From where I stand, it looks like a thirty-two caliber bullet. Now, with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Easy Mark. Corey Gilbert's face went sickly white, and her mouth twisted on the brink of hysteria as she stared at the dead man. I turned her away from it and led her to a window. She did the fastest job of pulling herself together I'd ever seen. And I went back to the body. On the way, I noticed a folded scrap of paper on the floor. It was a page torn out of a desk diary, but all that was written on it was the address of the unfinished house we were in. I looked down at what had once been Ross Kilbert. 
setup didn't make any sense. A victim of blackmail had been beaten up by a total stranger and then a little while later murdered. Somebody had killed a goose that was laying the golden eggs and it didn't figure in any direction. Well, I just about decided to go through his pockets when a sound from Corey changed my mind. <gasps> Marlo! Marlo, come here, quick! What is it, Corey? There's someone out there. I saw a shadow move. Get away from the window. Marlo, there, running. Why, it's a woman. Yeah, and quite a woman. What do you know? She's crossing the street now. Who is it, Marlo? Who is she? Character as French as Milani's 1890. Only she's more like nitric acid than salad dressing, Corey. Her name is Nanette Lamarck. She's getting in that car. Aren't you going to stop her? No. I've got a line on Miss Lamarck. I can find her. But she was hiding here. She could be the one who shot Ross, couldn't she? Easily. In fact, right now, she's the odds-on favorite. But she's also cagey, and we'll have better luck if we get her on home ground where she'll talk. Besides, there's a big chunk of this business that doesn't follow. What do you mean? Well, look, the murder came out in reverse. Ross was paying off. So he should have been the killer instead of the corpse. Which means there's more than blackmail involved. I don't know what you're talking about. All I know is he's dead and, and, and that woman killed him. Maybe. Come on, Corey, let's get out of here. Where are we going? Well, first you take me back to my car and then I got a job for you to do. What kind of a job? Well, I found this page ripped out of a desk diary, probably Ross's. I want you to go through all his things and find that diary for me. There might be something else in it that'll give us a connection. All right. Where are you going? I'm going to pay a call on Nanette. Only this time I'm bringing my own welcome mat. I think I'll need it. After Corey dropped me off, I called Lieutenant Ibarra at Homicide, reported the body, and then I got into my own car and drove out to Beverly Hills again, to the Camden Arms Court. Annette's bungalow had lights on. I parked down the street and made tracks back through the landscaping to a side window. Annette was playing pinup girl on the arm of a divan as she watched someone pace back and forth across the room. When I got close enough to hear what was being said, that someone turned out to be right, Corey Gilbert's right. first husband, Emery Marsh. Like chickens with their heads off. So Ross Gilbert was shot to death. But I've got to know the truth about one thing, Miss Lamarck. My entire life's work is at stake. Can't you understand? Now, hide, Monsieur Marsh. Do not break out into tears, I will tell you. Plummer is merely a private investigator I hired to, to locate Ross Gilbert for me. Now, are you happy? No. Why did such a person have my telephone number? That's what I want to know. I'll be ruined if I'm involved in this mess. My reputation means everything to my business, and, well, things aren't going too well just now. If I'm connected with a scandal, I'll be wiped out. Well, stop worrying. I saw you with Ross Gilbert three or four times before he disappeared. So I gave your name to Plummer as a, as a possible lead to Ross. That is all. Why did you want to find Ross Gilbert? That, mon ami, is none of your business. You found out what you wanted, so good night. All right. I'll go. But can I count on you to keep my name out of this? Listen, I am counting on me to keep my own name out of it. And I will be very busy doing that. Good night. I plastered myself up against the side of the house and watched Emery Marsh leave. He looked anything but happy over the result of his interview with Nanette, but I figured I had the benefit of experience to work with and less to lose than he had. So I waited until he was out of sight, and then I stepped up to the door, braced myself, and tried my luck. You again. Yeah, and I want to talk to you. Get your foot out of my door. Oh, get out of here. Get out. Not until we've had a nice, quiet chat, Nanette, and I think we'll take up where Emery Marsh left off. What? Look, just who exactly are you, Marlow? Your boy, Plummer, and I are distant fraternity brothers, but there the similarity ends. Just another chief private detective. Ooh. Okay, baby, if that tough stuff's the only language you understand, we'll talk that. Oh, stop it. Leave me alone. Now, get over there. Sit down. Oh. 
Oh, you, you ape! It'd be nice to me if I were you, Nanette. Because I'd just love to see a rope around that lovely neck of yours. And what's more, I can almost put one there. You're in a mess right up to your accent. So start making answers beautiful and keep them straight. First, why did you put Plummer on Ross Gilbert's trail? Because he double-crossed me, that is why. Double-crossed you how? He ran away from me. He was mine, all bought and paid for, you understand? Not exactly. When I met him, he was flat broke. I bought him every decent stitch of clothes that he had. Gave him everything he needed to be a gentleman because we were going to be married. And then he ran out on me and took everything with him that he could lay his hands on. Go on. Nobody does that to Nanette Lamarck. Nobody. So you hired that licensed thug plumber to find him and beat him half to death, right? Exactly. Well, go ahead, baby. The story doesn't end there. Tell me the rest, the good part. About how you waited until Plummer got through with him, and then you went down to that unfinished blueprint out of House and Gardens and killed him. No. No, that is not true. I, I did not do that. Why, I, I could not. That's no bigger lie than the rest of it. Where's that pearl handle thirty-two of yours, Nanette? And don't reach for it. Just tell me. What do you want with it? I want to see if it's been fired. Now, where is it? Call it, Jack. Oh, fine. Plummer. Miss Lamarck might not like for you to see her gun. Oh, I thought you would never get here. Who's this character, Miss Lamarck? Another private detective. Marlow by name. No kidding. Well, we got a lot in common, haven't we, Jack? Yes, yes. We've each got two arms and two legs. And the name is Phil. Oh, that's the way it is, huh? Well, listen, Jack. You got no business here in the first place. For two cents, I'll chop you down. You're even cheaper than I figured. Why, and you, you can put big... away that big, nasty gun, too, because I got you cold. That envelope you stuck in Nanette's mailbox tonight had a slip of paper inside from one of your old clients. Huh? What are, you, what are you talking about? Can't you guess? Hey, you want to see it? Well, yeah, yeah. Let's have a look at that. Okay. Take a good look. Oh, oh, come on. Drop the gun, Plummer. Come on. Drop it. My arm. All right. Now, fold up. There's your bargain basement detective, Nanette. You didn't get your money's worth, did you? Now, shall we take a look at that pearl-handled gun of yours? It is over there in my bag. Thanks. Lips full and that smell sure isn't gunpowder. Of course not. I did not kill Ross. Why, I was not even inside of that building where he was. Yeah, I know, but you... Wait a minute. Say that again. I said I was never inside that unfinished house where he was found. When I drove up, you were already there, so I left. Yeah, yeah, I know. And Plummer's gun is... Uh-huh. Fully loaded. Hasn't been fired either. Baby, you've just given me a great idea. An idea? But I do not understand. Never mind, I'll explain it to you later. And incidentally, you better be around. Right now, I've got to find out one more thing, and then maybe I'll pop this whole shebang wide open. Mr. Marlowe. Good evening, Mr. Marsh. Lucky to find you still working, huh? Late hours are a habit with me these days. Come in. Thanks. Uh, Mr. Marsh, I've come back for that help you offered me earlier this evening. I see. Well, the offer's still good. Fine. I think your ex-wife, Corey, is lying to me. She claims you didn't know Ross Gilbert, that you only met him once at that party in Ensenada, but you did know him, didn't you? Why, yes. As a matter of fact, I did get acquainted with Ross slightly. We had dinner together a few times. Uh-huh. And you really did favor his marriage to Corey because it freed you automatically from that alimony load you were carrying, that's correct, Marlowe, but I don't And see... it's also correct, isn't it, that you couldn't afford to go to court to have your alimony reduced because that would let your snobbish clientele know you were going on the rocks. Yes, that's also true. And maybe it's true that you actually engineered the marriage and it backfired on you. Very smart, Mr. Marlowe. Just keep your hands at your side. 
this might go off. Yeah, oh, yes. Well, I expected a reaction, but not quite so soon. Too bad. I'll trouble you for your gun, now that you've got it all figured out. Yes, Marlowe, I engineered that marriage. Corey was attracted to Gilbert, but he was broke. I knew that would scare Corey off if she found out. So you and Corey made a deal, particularly with Ross. He wanted to marry Corey. You supplied the cash for his courtship, right? Yes, only he wouldn't stop there. He kept demanding more. Sure, it figured from the start. Ross wasn't being blackmailed. He was the blackmailer himself, and that made you worse off than before, so you killed him. You're so right, Mr. Marlowe. And remember, the price for two murders is the same as for one. So you've really left me no alternative. I'll give you an alternative, Emery. (laughs) Corey! One thing you didn't count on. I really loved Ross Gilbert. Well, I guess that winds it up, Corey. Emery's in the hospital, and Nanette and Plummer are both in the clink. Too bad I only hit Emery in the hand. I never could trust my aim. It's always been bad, in a lot of ways. It was good enough tonight, baby. Lucky for me you showed up when you did. Say, what made you come to Marsha's place, anyway? Well, that page from the desk diary paid off, Marlowe. Only we made a mistake. Oh? It didn't come from Ross's diary. It came from Emery's. I finally remembered his handwriting. Mm-hmm. Now, you tell me something, Marlowe. Yeah. How did you know Emery was guilty? Oh. Well, he made the oldest slip in the book. When he was talking to Nanette, I overheard him say that Ross had been shot. Oh. Emery had no way of knowing that Gilbert was dead or how he'd been killed unless Nanette told him. And for a while, I thought she had, but then... I found out that she couldn't have because she'd never been inside the house where we found Ross. So it had to be Emery. Sure. I see. Well, Marlo, uh, what does a gal say at the end of a night like this? Thanks or something? Just thanks will be enough. I gotta do my income tax. Can I give you a lift? No. No, I'll walk a while. I've got some thinking to do about marksmanship. But call me sometime later on, will you? Just to see if I'm shooting in the right direction. You can count on it, Corey. Thanks. Good night, Phil. I watched her for a moment as she walked down the street all by herself, deep in her own thoughts, and it looked to me like she was playing it strictly square. I almost wanted to follow her. (laughs) The first time in a long time, I felt like I wanted to get to know a client better. But March 15th can slip up awfully fast, and that long-form 1040 was still unfinished and waiting for me in my office. So I decided to go back and work on my income tax and play it strictly square, too. After all, that's really the easiest way in the long run. Yeah, I keep telling myself. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore, and is produced by Norman MacDonald. The script by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt was directed by Ralph Rose. Featured in the cast were Sylvia Sims, Lorette Philbrandt, Ken Harvey, and Paul Duboff. The special music was by Richard O'Ron. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... There was a man with a bad heart, a telephone number scribbled on a cash register receipt, 
and a corpse on the other side of town. But I couldn't see the connection between them until I realized they were all tied together by the same long rope, worth $30,000. For some new wrinkles in the mystery field, look on the face of Mr. Jack Benny, eminent producer of the mystery comedy The Lucky Stiff, which opened in New York today. Although Mr. Benny's stars are Dorothy L'Amour, Claire Trevor, and Brian Donlevy, Jack's face is covered with new wrinkles because he couldn't be in New York to sell the tickets himself. He's remaining in Hollywood to appear tomorrow night on CBS on The Jack Benny Show with Mary Livingston, Don Wilson, Dennis Day, Phil Harris, and Rochester. So be sure to listen. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking for CBS, Jack Benny's new address, Sunday night on CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Love Gerald Moore as, uh, as Philip Marlowe. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, that one from CBS on January the 29th, 1949. It was titled The Big Mark. I'm going to uh, check on Chester. A little word about him. In the meantime, here's uh, here's a seldom heard Buddy Holly tune. Hearts that are broken and love that's untrue. These go with learning the game. When you love her and she doesn't love you You're only learning the game When she says that you're the only one she'll ever love Then you find that you are not the one she's thinking of Feeling so sad and you're all alone and blue That's when you're learning the game sad and you're all alone and blue that's when you're learning the game that's when you're learning the game that is a buddy holly tune that you don't hear often that was actually a recording made in his apartment with just him on an acoustical guitar and that was made just a couple of months before his tragic death up there in Iowa. Here comes Chester. Che- oh, boy. He looks... Chester, how, how did it go out there? Che- did, did, did you get him blown up? Did, how's Earl? Is he... Chester, are you okay? Oh, boy. 
Uh, we better uh, administer a little bit of first aid here. Uh, let's go ahead and start the comedy quarter. Uh, this button right here, right, Chester? Yeah, oh, uh, it's this one. Something familiar. Something peculiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Ah! Something appealing. Something appalling. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Nothing with keys. Nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Situation, no complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Ready tomorrow, comedy tonight. <laughs> well, this week on the Comedy Corner, we're going to once again visit Jack Benny and the whole gang including Mary and Rochester and Dennis Day. Uh, Don Wilson is not around on this one. Phil Harris, on the other hand, is in this one, and uh, his bit is probably uh, the funniest bit in the show. This one was originally broadcast on CBS back on the 27th of May, and the year was 1951. The guest star on this one is Speed Riggs. And you might wonder who that is. Well, if you don't know, he's the one who did the auction calls for Lucky Strike. He was actually an auctioneer, grew up in North Carolina, was born in 1907, and made a very successful career doing Lucky Strike commercials as the auctioneer. And he was particularly featured on uh, the Jack Benny Show and even more so on Your Hit Parade, which was uh, presented by Lucky Strike. Speed Riggs, he kept that job until the tobacco commercials were outlawed, which was, what, around 1960-something. I forget right offhand. Okay, here we go. Back to May 27th, 1951, and the Jack Benny Show. And the first voice you're going to hear here is none other than Speed Riggs. The Jack Benny Program, presented by Lucky Strike. The Lucky Strike Program, starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Bob Stevenson, pinch hitting this week for Don Wilson. Ladies and gentlemen, last week, Jack did his fourth television show in New York and is now back in Hollywood for his radio series. Many of you probably wonder how he keeps fit with such a strenuous schedule. So let's go out to Beverly Hills and see how our little star keeps in shape. Right now, he is standing in front of the radio doing his exercises. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Relax. (sighs) Gee, that was a tough one. And now, ladies and gentlemen, before continuing, if you find that these exercises are bringing you good health and give you that great-to-be-alive feeling, show your appreciation by patronizing my sponsor, the Continental Steam Shovel Company. Steam shovel? You haven't lived until you've built your own freeway. Gee, that must be fun. And now for our next exercise, which I will read to you from my book of health. First... 
Fold your arms. Uh-huh. Now bring your left wrist past your right elbow so that your right shoulder is in line with your left hip. <laughs> now pull through with a twisting motion and loop around the lower end, thus leaving the right side free. <clears throat> now grab the free side, bring down under, pull back, raise to the center, and follow through, passing the left shoulder with the right arm. <clears throat> <clears throat> well, I made it. Oh, heavens to Betsy, I picked up the wrong book. I just gave you directions for making a pretzel. <laughs> oh, for heaven's sakes, how am I going to get out of this? Rochester, Rochester. Here I am, boss, did you... Boss, boss, what happened? Never mind what happened, untangle me. Where do I start? Well, first straighten up my head. Where is it? I'm standing on it. Oh, yes. Boss, you're really twisted up. How did it happen? I'll tell you later. Now, just straighten me up and for heaven's sakes, hurry. Don't get excited, boss. If I can get your head free, the rest of your body will snap back into place. Now, let me get a good grip on your head. Ah, there you are, all straightened up. Thanks, I certainly What was that? Your nose, it was caught in your keychain Oh And now for the next exercise Oh no, you're not going to get me again Boss, maybe this exercise will do you some good Why don't you try it? I'm not taking any chances, I'll listen to it first To begin this exercise, stand erect and follow me Put your arms down at your sides Now raise your arms out from the sides Until they're level with your shoulders Now let them down, now raise them up down, up, down, up, down, faster, 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 up, down, faster, 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 faster. Ladies and gentlemen, we will now conclude this lesson as your instructor just flew out the window. <laughs> flew out the window? Tomorrow's program will come to you from Capistrano. <laughs> Rochester, turn that off. Yes, sir. It's the last time I'll ever listen to that time. I'll get it. Be happy, go lucky. Be happy, go lucky. Strike, be happy, go lucky. Well, hello, Phil. Hello, Jackson. <laughs> What's the matter, Phil? Don't you feel well? Well, I feel all right, I guess. <laughs> well, what's wrong? Oh, nothing. Hmm. Well, come on inside, Phil. Yeah, okay. Here. Here, sit down. Thanks. Now, come on, Phil, tell me. What's wrong? Well, I'd... I'd rather not talk about it. Phil, don't keep it to yourself. Tell me what's wrong. Remley's quitting my band. Good, good. Well, don't say that, Jackson. I'm hurt. Hurt to the quick. But, Phil... Well, you see, Remley's been with me for so many years. He's grown gray in my service. Wait a minute. Frankie's hair isn't gray. Not his hair, his skin. <laughs> oh, yeah, I noticed the grayness of his skin, but I thought he was just dusty. 
But then you had musicians quit you before. Why carry on like this? Well, it, it wasn't just business between me and Frankie. Well, it was more than that. Do you know that it was due to Frankie that I first met Alice? It was at a party. Oh. Frankie introduced you to Alice? Not exactly. I, I saved her from falling when she tripped over him. <laughs> How romantic. Well, Phil, what's Frankie going to do? Is he going to join another band? No, no. He's getting out of the music business completely. He's going to buy a farm with a hundred cows. <laughs> oh, then he'll probably make a living selling milk. Milk? <laughs> Is that what them cows give? Certainly. Well, let me hit that phone. I got to tell Remley. <laughs> Phil, let me handle it. Maybe I can get him to come back. I'll call Frankie. Hello, Frankie? This is Jack. Now, Frankie, how about you're changing your mind coming back to Phil's band? Huh? Yeah, he feels terrible about losing you. He's standing right next to me now, and he's crying. Oh, yes, he's really crying. Each tear has a little head on it. <laughs> That's fine. Goodbye. Phil, I've got good news. Frankie is... <clears throat> hmm, I can't understand. I only talked to him on the phone. <laughs> Phil, Frankie says he'll stay with your band. Oh, joyous day. <laughs> hey, thanks, Jackson. I never could have believed you could have fixed... Come in. Mary. Hello, Jack. Hey, how you live? Hello, Phil. Who hit you in the face with a glass of beer? He's been crying. <laughs> Mary, you're a little early. I'm not supposed to be at the doctor's office for an hour yet. Doctor? What's the matter with him, Livy? Well, Jack's going overseas this summer for the USO, and he has to get a checkup and some shots. Yeah. Anyway, Jack, I came a little early because I got a letter from Mom, and I thought you might want to hear it. Well, so long, kids. I'll be running along. Phil, don't you want to hear the letter? I'll hear it tonight on the repeat show. So long. <laughs> so long. So long. So you got a letter from your mother, eh, Mary? What does the Yogi Bear of Plainfield have to say? <laughs> I'll read it to you. <clears throat> My darling daughter, Mary. Oh, hold it a second, Mary. Hello? Hello, Mr. Benny. Oh, hello, Dennis. What do you want? <laughs> Dennis. Dennis, you called me. Oh, yeah. Say, Mr. Benny, the weather is so nice. How about you going to the beach with me? Well, it's silly to go all the way to the beach, kid. If you want to go swimming, why don't you come over here and use my pool? Oh, I'd rather go to the beach. All the people there are crazy about me. They think I'm a great comedian and I'm very funny. They do? Yeah. I went swimming last week and all the people at the beach stood around watching and laughing at me. Well, maybe it's because you look funny in your bathing suit. Oh, bathing suit! <laughs> Well, how about going to the beach, Mr. Benny? Mr. Benny? Uh, this is Mary. Jack's banging his head against the wall. Oh. And Dennis, I'm sure Jack won't go with you. He doesn't like the beach. Well, if he won't come, I'll just take my dog, Prince. Your dog? Yeah, we have a lot of fun. You know, throwing a stick into the ocean and bringing it back. Well, isn't that dangerous? No, he can't throw it very far. <laughs> 
Well, so long. See you soon, Mary. Mary. This is Jack. Mary stuck her head in the Bendix. Now, go look, kid. If there's nothing else, please hang up. Okay, goodbye. Goodbye. That kid gets sillier day by day. Oh, he's not so bad. He's not, eh? Then why are they getting idiot's delight to be his summer replacement? <laughs> I don't know. Now, Jack, do you want me to read Mama's letter? Oh, yes. Go ahead. <clears throat> My darling daughter, Mary. Hmm. Hello? It's me again, Mr. Benny. What do you want now, Dennis? Well, I forgot to tell you I didn't get my salary check last week. You didn't receive your salary check? No. That's funny. I made it out like the others. Everybody else got theirs in the mail. Well, did you mail mine with all the others? Uh-huh. Did you have my right address? Uh-huh. Did you mark the zone number next to the stamp? Oh, stamp! <laughs> already and hang up. All right, goodbye, goodbye. Hey, Dennis, wait a minute. Now what? As long as you're on the phone, let me hear the song you're going to sing on the program. Okay. I've had so many requests to sing my latest RCA Victor release, Mr. Mississippi. Never mind the plugs on the phone. It's only us and I don't buy. The operator might. Never mind. Just sing. Okay. Mississippi was all I ever had. Oh, I was born to wander. I was born to roam. And Mr. and Mississippi made me feel at home. Oh, I was born to wander. I was born to roam. Teacher was a gambler, the slickest one afloat. My teacher was a gambler, the slickest one afloat. He taught me not to gamble on a petticoat. Oh, I was born to wander, I was born to roam, and Mr. Mississippi made me feel at home. Oh, I was born to wander. I'd love a tiny village, a quiet country town, a house, a little garden with kitties running round. I'd be a faithful husband, no, I'd be a trusting friend. Until I heard that steamboat coming round the bend. Oh, I was born to wander, I was born to roam, and Mr. Mississippi made me feel at home. Oh, I was born to wander, I was born to roam. 
That song sounded swell Even though it was over the phone It'll even be better on the program when... Hmm <laughs> Can't understand that kid Every time I try to compliment him He either hangs up or walks out <clears throat> My darling daughter Mary <laughs> What? I'm reading Mama's letter Oh, oh, I'm sorry, doll Go ahead <laughs> My darling daughter Mary <laughs> Hmm <laughs> Come in. Well. Hello, Mr. Benny. Mr. Kitson. Hello, Mr. Kitzel. Hello, Miss Livingston. I didn't mean to intrude, but I'm dropping in to all my friends to tell them the good news. Good news? Mm-hmm, good news. <laughs> next month, next month, I am opening up a pet shop. A pet shop? Yeah. Say, that sounds interesting. What are you going to have in it? Oh, all kinds of fishes, angel fishes, guppy fishes, <laughs> and, and boats, canary boats, parrots, parakeets, and cats. Well, aren't you afraid that the... Uh, Mr. Kitzel, aren't you afraid that the cats will eat the birds? No, no. Sam Cats, my partner. <laughs> Mr. Kitzel, I think you'll be happy with a pet shop. It's a fascinating business. I think so. You know, that was always my ambition. Ever since I was a boy, I made money raising rabbits. Oh, you... you know how to raise rabbits? With rabbits? What do you have to know? <laughs> oh, oh, I see. Yeah. And you know, this may sound hard to believe, but when I was a boy, also for a pet, I had a pig. A pig? Yes. And never did a pig love anybody like that pig loved me. Why? I don't know. Maybe he realized I'd never eat him. Could be. Well, Mr. Benny, if you ever in my neighborhood, pop in and look around. I will. And Mr. Kitzel, lots of luck with your new business. Thank you very much. Goodbye. 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 See, Mary, I, I hope his pet shop is a success. Huh? So do I. Now can I read Oh, yes, it? yes, Mary, your mother's letter. Go ahead, Mary. Boss, look what time it is. You'll be late for the doctor. <clears throat> say, say, you're right, Rochester. Are you ready, Mary? Anytime you are. Well, let's go. And Rochester, you can have the evening off. Yeah, thanks, boss. I already called my girl, Susie. Oh, you got a date tonight, Rochester? Yeah, we're going to Wrigley Field. Oh, that's nice. You and Susie are going... Wait a minute. Rochester, the Los Angeles baseball team, isn't playing there this week. Wrigley Field is dark. Yeah! <laughs> oh, oh, I see. Well, come on, Mary. Let's go. Well, come on, Jack. Dr. Grant's office at the end of the hall. Okay. 
See, this building is full of doctors. Dr. Iman, eye specialist. Dr. Chester, chest surgery. Dr. Head, brain specialist. Dr. Foot, chiropodist. Dr. Smorgasbord, general practitioner. <laughs> oh, here it is, Dr. Grant. Let's go in, Mary. Mary, did you make an appointment for me? No, just talk to the nurse. It'll be all right. Just a minute, Mary. Uh, you've been to this doctor before. How much does he charge? Well, Jack, he hasn't any set fee. He charges according to the patient's income. What do you mean? Well, if one patient makes more than another, Dr. Grant feels the richer patient should pay more. Now, go on. Talk to the nurse. Okay. <coughs> yes, sir? Oh, I'd, uh, I'd like to see Dr. Grant. Oh, you're a new patient. Who recommended you? Recommended me? Uh, Miss Mary Livingston. I see. Your name? Jack Benny. Address? Uh, 366 North Camden Drive. Occupation? Unemployed. <laughs> Your age? Uh, 39. Do you have anyone to recommend that? <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Your weight? Uh, 155 pounds. Color of eyes? Eyes? They're blue, aren't they? Bluer than the winner's tongue in a huckleberry pie-eating contest. Uh, wait a minute. Aren't you Jack Benny, the comedian for Lucky Strike? I knew my last line would get you. <laughs> yes, I am. Why? Well, a friend of yours, Speedy Riggs, is in the other office with the Oculus taking an eye test. Oh, Speedy Riggs. Uh, may I go in and say hello to him? Uh, certainly. Right through that door. Thank you. Now, um, read the top line, Mr. Riggs. Yes, Dr. Cook. Oh, hello, Speedy. Oh, hello, Jack. Be with you in a minute. I'm just having my eyes examined. I know, I know. Now, read the top line, Mr. Riggs. L-S-M-F-T. Very good. Now, read the smaller print under it. Lucky strike means fine to, to tomorrow? <laughs> no, no, Mr. Riggs. That line says lucky strike means fine tobacco. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Now, I'll put in a stronger lens. Now, read the next line. A recent survey of 38 cities shows that millions of people are unhappy with their present blonde. That's brand. <laughs> you should have known that, Speedy. Now, can you read the very last line, Mr. Riggs? Oh, yes, I know that one. Be happy, go lucky, be happy, go lucky, strike, be happy, go lucky, go lucky, strike today. Poodly poop 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 poop. Where does it say poodly poop 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 poop? <laughs> Where? Right down there in the bottom, in the very fine print. Oh, well, that's the name of the company that prints the chart. J.M. Poodly Poo Poo and Son. <laughs> Now, Mr. Riggs, will you please read that bottom row of numbers as fast as you can? Yes, sir.
Oh, Mr. Benny. Yes, nurse. The doctor will be ready for you soon, but I still have a few more questions to ask you. Oh, well, go ahead, nurse. Did you ask me the color of my eyes? I asked you. I asked you. <laughs> now, tell me, do you belong to any medical plan? What was that, nurse? I say, do you belong to any medical plan? Yes, yes, I do. Which one? Well, the Blue Shield, the California Hospitalization Plan, the Exhaler Sick Benefit Group, <laughs> the Actors Mutual Health Society, the Los Angeles County Prepaid Medical Anesthesia and Ointment Program, <laughs> the Linwood Poison Ivy Protective Plan, and the Mutual Cooperative Health Association. That's the dollar a day till they carry you away plan. <laughs> I guess that's about all. <laughs> well, you certainly belong to a lot of medical groups. I know. Every day that I'm well, it's costing me a fortune. <laughs> For Christmas, he wanted me to break his leg. Mary, you can stop with that. You may go in to see the doctor now, Mr. Benny. Thank you. Oh, doctor. Doctor. <laughs> Look, doctor, I'm here... Hey, never mind. Just come right in and take your shirt off. Wait a minute. There's something I didn't settle with the nurse. What do you charge for an examination? In nothing. Now take your shirt off. Wait a minute. If you don't charge people, how do you make a living? I keep their shirts. Oh. And now let's get on with the examination. Uh, put this thermometer in your mouth. Yes, sir. And meanwhile, just stand behind this fluoroscope while I look at your chest and stomach. Now, hold still. Well, your chest seems to be all right. Now, look at your stomach. Mmm, strawberry, raspberry, cherry, orange, lemon, and lime. <laughs> Haven't you eaten since then? Hmm. <laughs> now, let me look at that thermometer. Well, your temperature seems to be all right. 66. 66? Oh, silly me, I've got it upside down. It's 99. That's better. I'm surprised it isn't higher. Why? I gave you a hot foot. Now, look, doctor, the only reason I came in was to get some shots. I'm going out of the country. Good. Never mind that. Now, how about my shot? All right, all right. I'll get the nurse to help me. We'll each give you a shot. That way we'll finish it faster. Oh, Miss Jones. Yes, doctor. And we're going to give the patient some overseas shots. Have you your needle ready? Yes, doctor. Let's start. Now, hold still. Wait a minute. What are you drawing those lines on my arm for? We love to play tic-tac-toe. What? I go here. Ouch. I go there. Ooh. I go here. Ouch. I go there. Ouch. I go here. Ooh. I beat you again. Doctor, nurse. Now, let's roll him over and start another game. Oh, no, you don't. I'm getting out of here. Oh, Mary. We'll be back in just a moment, but first, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to read you an important announcement. The Army is expanding. This means that there are many fine careers opening in the Women's Army Corps. If you are between 18 and 34, a high school graduate, single and otherwise qualified, the Women's Army Corps offers you an important, interesting future while serving your country. 30,000 volunteers are needed. Visit your local U.S. Army recruiting station now for details. You'll be glad you did. Thank you. 
Ladies and gentlemen, at 7.30, my television show will be seen in the Los Angeles area on Channel 2. This is the program in which Mary makes her television debut. Besides Rochester, my guest stars are Bob Crosby and the world's greatest golfer, Ben Hogan. Uh, Jack. What is it, Mary? Well, yeah, I'm a little worried. You know, I haven't seen the television show I was on, and how do I look? Mary, you look like a doll. You were beautiful. Oh. Well, was my performance all right? It couldn't have been more perfect. You remembered every line. You did great. Oh. Then why'd you say I was lousy when I asked you for my salary? <laughs> because business is business. <laughs> Jack Benny on television tonight at 7.30 in the Los Angeles area. Be sure to hear Dennis Day in the day in the life of Dennis Day. Stay tuned for the Amos and Andy show, which follows immediately. The Jack Benny program is heard by our armed forces overseas through the facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. That was the Jack Benny show, as originally broadcast on CBS back in May of 1951. Don't have a lot of historical notes here, but uh, I did want to mention Wrigley Field. When you heard that, did you immediately think, wait a second, uh, what's Jack doing in Chicago? I thought he lived in Beverly Hills. Well, there was a Wrigley Field ballpark in Los Angeles, and it was the park that housed the minor league baseball team, the Los Angeles Angels, for over 30 years. The Los Angeles Angels were members of the Pacific Coast League. I believe they were a triple-A team. I can remember going and seeing them play at Wrigley Field when I was a kid. Let's see. Wrigley Field was built in South Los Angeles in 1925, and it was named after William Wrigley, who, of course, was the chewing gum magnate. He owned not only the Chicago Cubs and the ballpark in Chicago, but also the Los Angeles Angels. Wrigley Field was uh, sort of a scaled-down version of the Chicago ballpark, but it was named Wrigley Field a year before Cubs Park was renamed Wrigley Field in Chicago in 1927. So it was the first ballpark to bear Wrigley's name. Uh, At the time, Wrigley owned Santa Catalina Island, if you can imagine that, 26 miles across the sea. And uh, it was there in the small town of Avalon, which is located on Catalina Island, a beautiful place. The Wrigley Mansion, I assume, is still there. It was there for years, up on top of a hill overlooking uh, Avalon Bay. Well, it was there that the Cubs used to have their spring training. Uh, With its location near Los Angeles, Wrigley Field was a popular place to film baseball movies. In 1927, one of the first films known to have been filmed there was a film entitled Babe Comes Home, a silent movie featuring Babe Ruth. There was a number of well-known films that were filmed there, including Pride of the Yankees with Gary Cooper about Lou Gehrig. That was filmed in Wrigley Field. Uh, Meet John Doe, the Frank Capra film, had a public rally scene that was filmed right there at Wrigley Field in 1940. Uh, Much of the musical movie Damn Yankees was filmed at Wrigley Field. A number of TV shows uh, also uh, were filmed there. Twilight Zone, remember the episode entitled The Mighty Casey? Wasn't that the robotic picture? Uh, That was filmed there. Mannix had an, uh, an episode entitled To Catch a Rabbit. 
It was filmed there in 1969. The Munsters uh, had an episode entitled Herman the Rookie in 1965 that was filmed there. Let's see. There was also a popular TV show. Now, I remember this when I was a kid. It was called Home Run Derby. And you'd have people like Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris and different ones come, kind of like what they do now before the All-Star Game. But it was a weekly series, and it was done there at Wrigley Field in Los Angeles. Let's see. L.A.'s minor league baseball days ended when the Brooklyn Dodgers of the National League moved to Los Angeles in 1958. The Dodgers considered using Wrigley Field, but they opted for seating capacity over suitability. And they set up shop for the first four seasons in L.A. in the 93,000-seat Los Angeles Coliseum. In 1961, Major League Baseball expanded and added uh, the L.A. Angels in the American League, and they played their inaugural season at Wrigley Field. But by that time, the neighborhood was going down. The ballpark needed a lot of improvements. And so in 62, the Angels moved to Dodger Stadium, which had opened that year. And uh, they referred to it as Chavez Ravine. And they played there until Anaheim Stadium was opened in 1966. The Wiz Kids had won it. Bobby Thompson had done it. And Yogi read the comics all the while Rock and roll was being born Marijuana we would scorn So down on the corner the national pastime went on trial We're talking baseball Klazuski Campanella Talking baseball The man and Bobby Feller The scooter, the barber and the nuke They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque Especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, Casey was winning, Hank Aaron was beginning, one Robbie going out, one coming in. Kiner and Midget Goodell, the Thumper and Mel Parnell, and Ike was the only one winning down in Washington. I'm talking baseball. Klazuski Campanella talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the duke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque. Especially Willie, Mickey, and the duke. Now my old friend, the bachelor, well, he swore he was the Oklahoma kid. And Cookie played hooky to go and see the Duke. And me, I always loved Willie May. Those were the days. Well, now it's the 80s, and bread is the greatest. And Bobby Bonds can play for everyone. Rose is at the vet, and Rusty again is a Met, and the great Alexander is pitching again in Washington. I'm talking baseball, like Reggie Cleasonberry talking baseball. Carew and Gaylord Perry, Siva, Garvey, Schmidt, and by the blue. If Cooper's town is calling, it's no fluke. They'll be with Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. 
and the do Say hey, say hey, say hey It was Willie, Nicky and the do Say hey, say hey, say hey I'm talking Willie, Nicky and the do Say hey, say hey, say hey That was Terry Cashman. He made a bundle back in the, I guess it was the 70s, or maybe it was the early 80s, and he did that song, Talking Baseball, and then he did a separate edition for each city. I don't know if he did it for every Major League Baseball team, but I know he did one for L.A., and he did one for St. Louis. I've heard it here a couple of times, but uh, some some great memories. When I was a kid, Duke Snyder, man, that was that was my hero. And I got to see him play. I got to see them play in the Coliseum, too. I I was actually there. I remember uh, going there a couple times for a Dodger game. It was really a, a, an odd thing. And then, of course, many, many times at, at Dodger Stadium. And then when we made the move to St. Louis, I'm just a huge baseball fan and love to go to Bush Stadium. A lot of great memories. A lot of great memories in baseball. Chester is doing better. Thank you. We ran him over to the urgent care there, and they put him on some oxygen. And he seems to be getting better. I'm just trying to keep him from going back out there and helping Earl again. from the music it is time for gun smoke everybody time to venture back to dodge city kansas got a good episode tonight this is one of the earliest episodes it was first heard on august the 23rd back in 1952 and it's entitled shakespeare and it features that great character actor hans conrad now those of you who are baby boomers probably remember hans conrad from uh, his appearances on various game shows that we used to watch back in the in the 60s. I remember him on the Jack Parr show as a regular guest back when he had the Tonight Show, even before Johnny Carson. And of course, he did a number of cartoon voices, uh, Snidely, Whiplash. And, uh, he was the, one of the hosts of the Fractured Fairy Tales uh, from Jay Ward. 
Hans Conrad was born in Baltimore, and he offered himself during the Depression to a, a series of radio stations in his area, and he soon landed voice jobs. And by the time he was 18 years old, he was considered a professional. He did a uh, number of uh, Shakespearean plays on the radio. In fact, he became so proficient at it, by the time he was 21, he had many of the Bard's great speeches memorized. By the time the late 30s came around, uh, Conrad found himself fluctuating between uh, small movie roles and also radio, but if you gave him the choice, he would have preferred to stay in radio. He found the money was better and the parts that he got were much larger. Sadly, as big-time radio began to fade during the late 40s and the early 50s, Conrad had no choice but to concentrate more on film work. And about that time, he also landed a choice role in the Cole Porter Broadway musical Can Can. Simultaneously, he started making TV appearances. As we mentioned, he was a regular on the Jack Parr show. He was on a number of game shows. And he also was introduced as Uncle Tanoose, the uncle of Danny Williams on the Danny Thomas show, Make Room for Daddy. You probably remember that. And then, of course, he got into the cartoon work. A lot of that started when Walt Disney cast him as Captain Hook in the 1953 cartoon feature Peter Pan. Hans Conrad was uh, active in show business until he suddenly died of a heart attack on January 5th back in 1982. He was only 64 years old. He was married to his wife, Margaret, just short of 40 years at his death, and they had four children together. Well, you're going to love him in this role. Here he is as a traveling thespian on Gunsmoke. City and in the territory on west. There's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with the U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Conrad, the story of the violence that moved west with young America, the story of a man who moved with it, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The heat was bad enough in Dodge City, but out on the plain, it was the dust. The sun was a burning red-brown chip in the sky, and the sweat on a man never had a chance to drop. It was blotted and dried with dust. Doc Chester and I had ridden to old man Gore's place ten miles out. He'd had some trouble with one of the hands. Fell had gone loco with liquor and had been shooting up the cattle. We found him, stripped naked nearby on his haunches, crying, drunk over a parched water hole. Doc had got him to bed and fixed him up some. And now we were heading back for Dodge. Darn horse. 
Pope seems he's just bound to stomp all the dust and candles in my eyes. <laughs> Maybe the marshal will buy you a camel, Chester. This keeps up. We'll all buy camels. I remember the time back in Waco when I was just Doc, small. Chester, you see something ahead on the side of the trail there? Um, yeah, maybe. It looks like some poor calf strayed off and dropped. I don't think so. Yeah, it looks like a man. Come on. Chester, get the water bag. Yes, sir. Yeah. Let me have a look, Marshal. Yeah. Let's uh, see. Heat. Is he all right? Well, depends on how long he's been lying here. Here you are, Mr. Dillon. Uh, Open up his shirt, Marshal. Chester, get some of that water on his wrist. All right. It looks like an Easterner, huh? Sure not dressed for this country. Oh, oh. oh well, that's better. That's better. Try to get a few drops in him. All right, now. No, not too much, Chester. <coughs> not in his nose, Chester, his mouth. Well, my gracious, I'm sorry, Mr. Dillon, but he moved his head. It's not so easy to... Hey, look, he's awake. You're all right, mister. Just take it easy for a bit now. Oh, but this too, too solid flesh would melt thaw, and resolve itself into a dew. What did he say? Oh, it's out of his head, Chester. For this relief, much thanks. Forget it. Chester, get around the other side and shade him from the sun. Yes, sir. The sun. I begin to be weary of the sun. I don't blame you. Uh, what happened? The wagon shed a wheel, I fear, along the high road. I know not where I am. Uh, you're about four miles out of Dodge City. The, the Kansas. Kansas. Uh, I would give all my fame for a pot of ale and safety. You better get him to town quick. He's in a bad area. Uh, you think you can make it on a horse? We'll take you into... We'll take him into Dodge. And he passed out again. We tied him across Doc's horse. Doc and I doubled up and Chester rode behind. The stranger was a tall, skinny man with a face like a friendly mule. Big hands and thin wrists stretched out from his sleeves. He had no papers on him, nothing. And until he woke up, we wouldn't even know his name. Doc settled him down in the back of his place, and he was still asleep when Chester and I rode out to where we figured he'd left his wagon. It wasn't hard to see when we found it. What color wagon would you call that, Mr. Dillon? Puce, Chester. Puce. I guess so. Seems to be some writing on the side there. Yeah. Oh, Irving Henry... Thespian supreme disciple of the immortal bard. Mm. I should have known he was a religious man. Uh, he's an actor, Chester, the immortal bard. Shakespeare, William Shakespeare, wrote plays, poems. Ah, uh, uh, hey. oh. 
harbor. You think he let the horses go, Mr. Dillon? Well, I was wondering that. Seems to me he'd have ridden for help instead of trying to walk. Horses couldn't have got out of the harness ourselves. Well, let's take a look at the wheel. Huh? Wish we could wait till the sun goes down. It's going to be awful hot work, Mr. Dillon. <clears throat> it's not too bad. The pen fell out. Must be another in the box at the back. Take a look, will you, Chester? Yes, sir. I'll prop the wheel up here. Ah. Mr. Dillon? Yeah, can't you find it? Will you come here a minute? Uh, what's the matter? Take a look in there. It took a second or two to get used to the darkness inside the wagon. And then I saw the hand sticking out from behind the trunk. You didn't have to be the doc to know that it was a dead hand. The body was of a man about 40. He was dirty. And in a greasy, torn waistcoat, I found a pocketbook with his name. Sam Matchett. And that was all. Below his left shoulder and his back was a patch of dried blood. And in the middle... A bullet hole. We got the wagon wheel on, hitched up our horses, and drove into Dodge. Doc? Oh, that's you, Marshal. Uh, yeah. Yeah, be right out. All right. Get that fella's wagon fixed up? Yeah, I brought it in. Is he awake? Oh, I haven't looked in the last half hour. I was making coffee. You want some? Uh, no, thanks. Oh, it's a funny thing about coffee when it's hot weather like this. Drink it's called in and it makes you feel cooler outside. Uh, look, Doc, I got to see that fellow. I want to ask him a couple of questions. Oh, that's so? I found a dead man in the back of his wagon. You don't say. You better take a look. Chester's bringing him in the side. Oh, sure, sure, sure. You want to go on back? Uh, yeah, thanks, Doc. <clears throat> Mr. Henry? Mr. Henry, wake up. Yeah, what? Oh... Your name, Irving Henry? Oh, Irving Henry. What is this place? Now, you got to listen to me for a minute. We found your wagon. Ah? Uh -huh. Did you let the horses go before you sat on your own? Of course. I could not let them remain to die. Well, how come you didn't take one to ride? I have a loathing of horses. I cannot bear one under my body. <coughs> There is a carafe of water beside the bed. Would you be good enough, uh, Mr. Uh, uh... Uh, Dillon, Matt Dillon. I'm the marshal here in Dodge City. Here you are. Oh, my thanks. Now, what were you doing with a dead man in your wagon, Mr. Henry? A dead man? A dead man shot in the back line in your wagon. This is very midsummer madness. I won't argue about that, but I'll thank you to answer my question. But it is impossible. It isn't true. I say it is. You lie in your throat if you say that I'm any other than an honest man. Look, mister, I didn't say you weren't honest. You're an actor. And you got a fine way of saying things, but murder's murder. I don't care how you say it. Now, I'm asking questions, and I want straight answers. Your pardon, sir, but what you tell me... In truth, if, if it were played upon a stage, I would condemn it as an improbable fiction. I swear to you, I know nothing of a body. 
Did you come through Hayes City? Yeah. Do you know a man there called Sam Matchett? No. You had no trouble in Hayes City? No. What are you doing in these parts, Mr. Henry? Uh, I'm... I am touring the provinces. An actor eating the bitter bread of banishment. My talents are not taken for their worth in the East. Therefore, I bring the immortal bard to the hinterlands. And now, sir, that the interview is ended, pray give me leave to depart. I'm sorry, I can't do that. You'll have to stay until we get this thing cleared up. Mr. Dillon, Doc would like to see you. Uh, All right, Chester. Stay here with Mr. Henry, will you? Sure, Mr. Dillon, sure. How are you feeling by now, Mr. Henry? Would you like some more water? Those evil manners live in glass. Doc. Right here, Marshal. What'd you find? Well, there's one thing. This man didn't die right away. I mean, not right when he was shot. Is that so? No. More likely bled to death. Inside. Uh-huh. Uh, you think he might have been able to climb up in the wagon after he was shot? Well, he might. There's another thing. Yeah. You see the way he's dressed? Now you take a look at that. Hell! Come on, come on, Doc. Come on. Chester. What's the matter with him? Chester. My gun when I was pouring him some water, Mr. Dillon. He must have gone through the window, Marshal. I, I tried to get it back. Went off. Take care of Chester, Doc. I'm going after him. When I went out of there, I didn't know how badly Chester was hurt. There was a lot of blood on his head and over his face. It was nearly dark outside, and the street was empty. It was supper time. I could see the women through the windows getting food ready. The kids were inside, too. Sure looked peaceful. But with Henry out with a gun, well, that wasn't a good thing to have running around loose in Dodge. See a man run down the street, Miss Fletcher? Well, no. Oh, you better get inside and lock your door. Don't come out again. There's a killer loose. I walked the length of the street, listening, waiting. And when I got to the end, there was nothing. He hadn't taken a horse, I'd have heard that. And in a way, I was sorry, because if he'd tried to hide and dodge, there'd be no way to get out of shooting that wouldn't get women and kids hurt. A breeze came up, and swirls of dust flew around, and then settled as the air became still and hot again. I went back to Doc's place. No, how's Chester? Oh, I'm fine, Mr. Dillon. Just creased my head, more mess than hurt. Oh, good, Chester. Uh, Look, you want to go home or you want to work? I want to work. All right, go down to the office, get yourself another gun, and round up some men, as many as you can. 
As long as Henry stays in town, we're in trouble. Now, keep your eyes open. Meet me back here. Yes, sir, Mr. Dillon. Take my gun with you, and if you see him, watch out. All right, now get going. Yes, sir. Now, Doc, I'm going to have to make you a deputy, too. Well, <laughs> well, maybe instead of digging out bullets, I'll be putting some in. It's not funny, Doc. Now, come on. All right, we'll start here. I'll take this side, you take the other. Get the men to go through their houses and tell them to look for their horses. Tell them what's happening. But 10 o'clock that night, as far as we could tell, Henry hadn't left town. There were plenty of places for him to hide, though. We had 50 men out searching. Chester and I were working along back of the express office. There were a couple of houses there we hadn't covered. You wouldn't think a man like that would be a killer, now would you, Mr. Dillon? I never saw a man yet couldn't be, Chester. Depends on your reasons for killing, I guess. Now, let's take a look behind these boxes. You think he could have got this far? Yeah, he might. A lot of back streets to sneak around in the dark. That's Miss Cullen's place there, isn't it? Yes, sir. Looks like she's still awake. Light burning back there. Yeah. <clears throat> Seem a bit cooler to you tonight, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, a bit. Evening, Miss Cullen. I'm sorry to get you up, but we're looking for a man, a stranger around. He's tall, thin. You seen anyone about tonight? No. No, I haven't. Uh-huh. Um, how, how's the kids? Oh, they're fine. Thank you, Mr. Dillon. Fine. Uh-huh. Well, you keep the place locked tight, Miss Cullen. Don't let anybody in tonight unless you know who it is. All right. Good night, Mr. Dillon. Good night, ma'am. Well, now, that's strange. She didn't even say hello to me, and I know her better than you do, Mr. Dillon. Chester, round up the others. Get them over here. I don't know why she... He's in there with her. I think he's got the kids in the sleeping room. Oh. Sent her out to get rid of us. Now, I'm going to try and get in. Don't do anything when you come back. Just put the men around the house. Yes, sir. I'd seen Miss Cullen make a move with her head. And her eyes said the rest. When I told her to lock up, I shook my head and I hoped she understood. I wanted that front door to stay open. He was in there, all right. I could hear him. I wanted him alive. But I wasn't going to risk hurt to Miss Cullen or the kids getting him. I did what you asked. Don't hurt the children, please. They will never know this night. And in the morning, when they're... You 
said you locked the door after you. No, don't. Don't. I shall keep the pistol turned to the girl's head, madam. Someone is here. They try to take me. Tiger's heart wrapped in a woman's hide. Listen to me, Marshal Dillon. Throw your pistol in here and then come in with your hands before you. I have no stomach for child killing, but I will not hesitate to do so. Give me the gun, Henry. No. You won't be able to get out of this. I must. There is living to be done. You know, that fancy talk isn't going to help either. Now, why don't you climb down? What happened to Matchett? Nothing happened to Matchett. Why'd you kill him? I didn't. In five minutes or less, there'll be 50 men or more around here. Now, what are you going to do? I don't know. If you didn't kill Matchett, you'll get a chance. I'll see to that. There's no use going on this way. Give me the gun. I cannot. It is my prop of salvation. No gun is salvation to anybody. Put it down. You must tell the men to go away, Marshal Dillon. I'll have to take one of these children with me for my protection. No! <laughs> Shed a tear for me, madam. I have the greater need. You do a lot of talking, mister. I'd like to see you turn the gun away from that kid's head. That'd take more than talk, wouldn't it, though? I have no skill with such a weapon. Why should I match with you? I want to live. You're going about it the wrong way. The smallest worm will turn being trod upon. Meaning... You gave me no choice when you brought me here. Would have been better to have left me lying in the dust. You don't understand. You don't know. Well, why don't you tell me? What good would it do? It depends. My life has been the theater. As a boy, I, I was a student of Shakespeare. He would look at me. Who would accept this face for Hamlet? This ill-shaped body for Romeo. <laughs> His speech has become my speech. But the fools only look. They cannot listen for laughing. There have been ugly men before you... Hasn't been cause for murder. Why'd you kill Matchett? In New York, there was a man. A gross, stupid man who fancied himself an interpreter of the bard. He, he took me, me, as his apprentice. And together we set out for the tour I would play under the voices. 
Never Richard. Never Henry. Never Leah. Only, only the voices. Whilst he, stumbling, drunken, he muddled and tore to a tatter the words that I should have spoken. You killed a man because you wanted to play a hero? How easily murder is discovered. Yes, sometimes, I guess. It was yesterday. We were leaving Hayes City. We played there for two days, and it made me a laughing stock. It was night. And he became drunk and, and threatened to leave me in the next town. I made him stop the wagon and taking up a pistol, I shot him. He did not die at first. And when I saw what I had done, I, I wanted him to live. And I put him into the wagon and, and I drove on, hoping to find a doctor. Then, as, as the night passed, I saw that he had died. And I was afraid. The wagon broke down? Yes. I, I put my purse into his clothes and took his name for mine. How I've hated the name of Sam Matchett. But you wouldn't understand. I wouldn't. Well, what now? I want to live. I want my chance. You've done a murder. I can't let you go. You know that. Don't make it harder. I lost my husband two years ago. I know what it is to be alone. You've been alone, haven't you? I'm sorry. But you killed someone. We may pity, though not pardon, dear. <laughs> I'm going now, Marshal. If you walk out of there with your gun, you're a dead man. Uh, death's a great disguiser. I must have my chance. Don't do it, Matchett. There'll be killing. Madam, forgive me. I would not have harmed your children. Matchett, put down your gun. Let me go my way. Please. There are a lot of men waiting for you out there, Matchett. You know what'll happen if you open the door. Don't do it, Matchett. the rub for in that sleep of death what dreams make 
matches. He knew he was going to die. The minute he opened that door, he knew it. And maybe he wanted to, because he fired first a single shot. We buried him in back of the church, and I found some words in a book to put on his grave. He that dies pays all debts. Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by Anthony Ellis, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Hans Conrad was featured as Henry, with Mary Lansing as Mrs. Cullen. Parley Bear as Chester, and Howard McNear as Doc. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Roy Rowan speaking. Remember, gangbusters go into action Saturday nights on the CBS Radio Network. Wasn't that good? Uh, Hans Conrad was really good in that. That was Gunsmoke from uh, August of 1952, and the name of that one was Shakespeare. One of my favorite episodes. I just love the dialogue that Hans Conrad had in there. Well, I am sorry to say Chester did go back out to help Earl blow back up his <laughs> all of his, his uh, lawn decor. And I, I just had to, I just had to go out and help them both in. Earl, uh, can you and Chester both come in here? You know, you guys are not spring chickens, and you just, you, you can't be doing that. You, listen to you. You, you both sound like you're gonna die. Oh well, listen. That one good thing came of this. It reminded me of an old Jerry Lee Lewis song. And uh, <laughs> see if you remember this one. Now I hate you, you love me, let's police don't tease. 
goes round and round My love won't tumble me down You leave me Breathless Well, I shake all over and you know why I'm sure it's love, honey, and that's no lie Cause when you call my name You know I'm burning like wood in flame You leave me Breathless Ooh, baby Ooh, crazy You're much too much Honey, I can't love you enough It's all right to hold on tight But when they you to love me, to love me right Oh, come on, baby, now don't be shy This love was meant for you and I When rain, sleet, or snow I'm gonna be wherever you go You have left me Breathless Jerry Lee Lewis. I remember he used to jump all over his piano and act like an absolute idiot. And we loved it as teenagers. All right, we're all out of time, I'm afraid. So it is time to pick up all of our shows and carry them back into the vault. That's going to kick things in the head for another week. We will be back in two weeks, and we're going to do it all again. Don't worry about Chester and Earl. They're recuperating. They're in the other room having an adult beverage and giggling. So I guess they're going to be okay. All right, then. We're going to go out tonight with another song that uh, will remind you when you were a kid, that is, if you are a baby boomer. 
This is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by, and I'm so glad you met me. She couldn't 